Amen. All right. Well, today is our family and friend day, and we're beginning a brand new series this morning on the subject of the family. Uh, we're talking about a faithful family. We want to have a family that's full of faith, and we want a family that's faithful as well. And uh, today we're beginning this series with a sermon entitled Breaking Generational Curses and Establishing Generational Blessings. The sermon title is Breaking Generational Curses and Establishing Generational Blessings. As I read through the Bible, you know, many times over my life, I've always been intrigued by this idea that you find in Scripture multiple times. We'll look at it several times this morning, but we won't look at all of them, where God basically has a curse that is placed upon multi-generations of a family or of a nation, and we're going to be talking about today how to break those curses. You may be living under a curse that was placed upon your family, maybe not by you, but by a grandfather or a great-grandfather or a great-great-grandfather, and I'd like you to kind of teach this to you before we get into the practical application part of the sermon, and I'd like you to write down a few statements if you would, and if you don't have a child on your lap or something like that, on the back of your course of the week, you have a place for sermon notes, and I'd like you to write down three statements this morning. Statement number one is this. When it comes to breaking generational curses, realize that you have been influenced by past and you will influence future generations. Realize that you have been influenced by past and you will influence future generations. When we're talking about generational curses, we find the first and maybe most famous of these in in this famous chapter in Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is known for holding the Ten Commandments, but I want you to notice that it also holds the first reference to a generational curse. Look down at verse number one there in the book of Exodus. The Bible says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now I want you to notice in verse three that the reference is a religious reference. He's talking about worshiping other gods and having idols. He says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Notice verse 4. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Notice what he says in verse 5. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. Talking about bowing down yourself or worshiping a false idol, nor serve them, for I am the Lord thy God. For Excuse me, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. And I want you to notice this phrase. And this is the first time we see it in Scripture, and we're going to see it several times here this morning. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. He says, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. You're there in Exodus 20. Flip with me a few pages to Exodus chapter number uh, 34. Exodus chapter number 34. If I could get help with one of the ushers, and if I could get a bottle of water, I'd appreciate that. Exodus chapter number 34. Look down at verse number 7, Exodus chapter number 34 and verse number 7. In in Exodus 34, just to get a little bit of the context, we are jumping into the story where, remember where Moses went up to the mount, he'd been up there for 40 days and 40 nights, the children of Israel thought he was not coming back, and they actually created, they they made a golden calf, and they began to worship it. So I want you to notice the context again is about worshiping an idol, worshiping a false god. They began to worship the golden calf, and of course Moses comes down, and he takes care of business, he's 
destroys the golden calf, and he's trying to get the people right with God. That's the context that we find in Exodus 34 in verse number 7, where it says, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Thank you very much, sir. Forgiving uh, iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty. Notice the phrase, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Go to the book of Numbers with me. Numbers chapter number 14. You're there in Exodus. You're going to go past the book of Leviticus into the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter number 14. Numbers chapter number 14. In Numbers 14, just to get a little bit of the context, what we're jumping into is the story of when the children of Israel... Remember, they were supposed to go into the promised land. They sent in 12 spies, and 10 came back with an evil report. They decided not to go in because they were afraid of the giants. They were afraid of the walled cities on the other side, and they chose not to follow God's will for their lives. There were parents who were saying, we're not going to do what God has called us to do because we're afraid. And that's the context in which you find this verse, Numbers 14, verse number 18. Notice what it says. The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving the iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. Notice the phrase, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Go to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter number 5. You're there in Numbers? It's just the very next book, all right? Deuteronomy, we've gone through Leviticus, Num- uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Now we're going to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter number 5, Deuteronomy chapter 5. Look at verse number 7, Deuteronomy chapter number 5, and verse number 7, Deuteronomy 5, 7. The Bible says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Notice the context again. Again, this is the second time that the Ten Commandments are mentioned. He's referring to the fact that I don't want you to worship other gods. I don't want you to worship other idols. Notice verse 8. Thou shalt not make thee any graven images or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the waters beneath the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself unto them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Notice our statement. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Go to Deuteronomy 23. Deuteronomy chapter 23. I just want to show you these references so you can see them. And I want you to understand, when the Bible refers to generational curses, I want you to understand, the Bible teaches that children will not be uh, held responsible for the sins of their fathers. The Bible teaches personal responsibility. That you and I are to take responsibility for our actions. In fact, I have found today that the problem with most males, I won't call them men today, but males in our society today that are not willing to raise their children, that are not willing to take the spiritual leadership, that are not willing to be the man that God has called them to be, is because we have actually created a culture that teaches to not take responsibility for your actions. That when I do something, I should just blame it on somebody else. The Bible does not teach that. So I want you to understand, when we're talking about generational curses, we're not talking about blaming your grandparents for for the sins of today. But I do want you to understand that the Bible over and over and over and over again refers to this idea that when you make decisions in this generation, when you fathers and mothers choose certain things, you will have an effect. You must realize that you have been influenced by past generations and you will influence future generations. You're there in Deuteronomy uh, 23. Look at verse 3. 
Notice the influence that these people had on their future generations. An Ammonite or a Moabite, notice what it says, shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. These people were not allowed to come and worship the Lord. They were not allowed to come and enter uh, uh, into, the, in, into the congregation of the Lord. And by the way, let me, let me go ahead and say this. Coming into the congregation of the Lord is not a right. It is a privilege. We, we have the privilege today of being a member of a local New Testament church, of the movement that the Lord Jesus Christ started and died for and heads and built. It is a privilege. And here you find God telling these people, no, you don't get to come in. Notice what he says. An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord, even, notice what it says, to their 10th generation. They shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord forever. Because they met you, you say, why, God, why? Notice, because of their actions. Because they met you not with bread and with water in the way when you came forth out of Egypt. He said, when you came out of Egypt, they asked, could we just cross, could we just cross uh, by your land, pass by your land? And they said no, and they tried to hurt them. Notice, because they met you not with bread and, wa- and with water in the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired against thee Balaam, the son of Beor, of, of Pethor, and of Mesopotamia, to curse thee. Notice verse 5, nevertheless. The Lord thy God would not hearken unto Balaam, but the Lord thy God turned the curse into a blessing unto thee, because the Lord thy God loved thee. Thou shalt not seek their peace, nor their prosperity, all the days forever. Notice verse 7. Thou shalt not. Now here he's shifting gears. He says, he's telling, the, the, he's telling him the Ammonite and the Moabite, they can't come in the congregation. Now he's going to talk about the Edomite. Notice what he says in verse 7. Thou shalt not abhor the Edomite. He says, don't hate the Edomite, for he is thy brother. Thou shalt not abhor an Egyptian, because that was a stranger in his land. The children that are begotten of them, the children that are begotten of who? Of the Edomites and of the Egyptians. Notice what he says. Shall enter into the congregation of the Lord in their third generation. I just want you to notice, and I want you to understand, that there are consequences that go down the line, even past generations to the second and the third and the fourth generation. Go to the book of Luke with me in the New Testament. You open up your Bible to the New Testament, you got the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke chapter number 14. And let me say this. You say, what, what, what are you talking about? Because oftentimes people will say, you know, what about these countries? And here's what, you know, that the gospel is not being preached. Well, first of all, I believe that we should go out and preach the gospel to every nation. Amen. Every country that the, we, we need to go out and try to reach them. But here's what you need to understand, because people often say, like, what about these countries where the gospel is not being heard? What about those people? Are they held accountable for the gospel? Are they held accountable for what the Bible says? And here's what you need to understand. If you look at the countries today, that by and large, and we understand that it, there are believers in every country of this world. There is a remnant all over this world. But there are countries that by and large have rejected the gospel. I'm talking about countries like Japan. I'm talking about countries like India. China, Pakistan, Iraq, Iran, you know, countries where you would say Christianity is not really alive there. The movement of Christianity is not alive there. You know, there's not, there, there's not uh, anything going on for God there. there. There's believers there, we're sure, but, but there are countries that by and large have rejected the gospel. You say, is it those people's fault? But here's what you need to understand. Every single one of those countries at some point in history had a missionary show up, had missionaries show up, had people go there with the gospel. But you know what you had is you had fathers and you had mothers and you had leaders and you had political leaders and governmental leaders who decided, no, we want to worship another God. We want to worship an idol. 
We don't want the God of the Bible. And they made that choice. But listen to me. That choice has affected their countries and the descendants that came from them to the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth to the tenth generation. Those people have been affected because of decisions that were made by their forefathers. See, you need to realize that you, you, you say, I, I, I'm an American today, I'm, I'm saved, I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of that is because you have been influenced by the past generation. Amen. And you will influence future generations. So you're there in Luke chapter number 11. Look at verse number 47. Luke chapter number 11 and verse 47. Notice what Jesus said. Luke chapter number 11 and verse 47. Notice what the Bible says. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. If you have a red letter edition Bible, these letters are in red. This is because these are words that the Lord spoke himself. Luke chapter number 11, verse 47. Notice what he says. Woe unto you. He's talking to the Pharisees. He's talking to the Jews of his day. He says, woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets. Notice what he says. And your fathers killed them. He says, woe unto you, for ye build the sepulchres of the prophets, and your fathers killed them. Truly ye bear witness that ye allow the deeds of, notice, your fathers. For they indeed killed them, and ye build their sepulchres. Therefore also said the wisdom of God, I will send them prophets and apostles, and some of them they shall slay and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets, which was shed from the foundation of the world, notice what it says, don't miss this, last part of verse 50, may be required of, notice, this generation. You say, wait a minute, but it was their fathers that killed the prophets. It was their fathers that rejected the prophets. It was their fathers that chose to go down that road. But listen to me, you must realize that you have been influenced. These Pharisees had been influenced by past generations. And let me tell you something, today... Jews, by and large, have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ because the Jews of today have been influenced by past generations. You have to realize that you have been influenced by past generations and you will influence future generations. Notice verse number 51. From the blood of Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple, verily I say unto you, notice what Jesus said, it shall be required of this generation. See, when we're talking about generational curses, when we're talking about generational blessings, what is it that you're talking about? Go, go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter number 7. You're there in Luke, you're going to go past the book of John into the book of Acts. Acts chapter number 7. Acts chapter number 7 and look at verse number 51. Acts chapter number 7 and verse 51. You say, what are we talking about? Here's what we're talking about. Number one, you must realize that you have been influenced by past and you will influence future generations. It's just the way it goes. Acts chapter 7 and verse 51. Notice what the Bible says. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and hear. Notice what the Bible says. Ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Don't miss this. As your fathers did. So do ye. You say, why make that connection? Why not just say, well, you resist the Holy Ghost. But see, there's a connection there. They resisted the Holy Ghost because their fathers resisted the Holy Ghost. Why did their fathers resist the Holy Ghost? Because probably their fathers and their fathers. And there's a generational curse there that has been established unto the third and the fourth generation. But when the fourth generation picks it up, guess what happens? Now it gets established to the second and the third and the fourth. And when the second generation picks it up, guess what happens? Now it gets established to the second. And it can sometimes become this unending thing where you have it a country full of millions of people that all reject the gospel. 
See, you need to understand that you have been influenced, and you will influence future generations. I'd like to read an article for you. It's from ABC News. It's entitled, Crime Runs in the Family. It says this, eye color and sense of humor can, ruin a fa- can, can run in a family, excuse me. And then it says, so can crime. The killing of two adolescent Oregon girls may be the latest example of how different generations and a family can make the same terrible decisions. Ward Weaver III, 39, is a principal suspect in the death of Ashley Pond and Miranda Gaddis, whose bodies were found buried beneath a concrete slab and in a shed at Weaver's home. He is jailed on charges of rape and has passed convictions for assault with a deadly weapon. Weaver admitted on ABC News' Good Morning America that he had failed a lie detector test but denied involvement in the crime. His son Francis told police Weaver had confessed to raping and killing the girls. It is not the first time Weaver's family has been associated with murder and sexual crimes. They're trying to make a father and son connection here because my father father has a severe history, Weaver told Good Morning America in July. Weaver's father, Ward Weaver Jr., is on California's death row for killing a young couple in 1981. The bodies were found under a freshly poured concrete slab behind his home. He had also served time for rape and confessed to beating to death Robert Redfield and raping and strangling the man's fiancée, 23-year-old Barbara Levoy. According to court records obtained by the Portland Oregonian, the elder Weaver buried Levoy's body, then moved the remains to a hole behind his home. He forced his son Rodney, then 10 years old, to help him dig the grave and cover it up with concrete. Ward Weaver III has yet to be charged in the death of Gaddison Pond earlier this year, but criminologists say it is not surprising that crime may run in the family. It's very clear that there's a strong relation between violent behavior and in the parents and violent behavior in children, said Alan Lippman, the director of Center of Georgetown University for the Study of Violence. Studies dating from the 1930s have shown a link between families, criminal histories, and likelihood of running afoul of the law, and data from the nation's federal prisons back this up. Half of all juveniles in custody and 47% of state prison inmates have a close relative who has been incarcerated, according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, a research division of the Justice Department. The figures are not surprised surprised to those involved in the justice system. A lot of times it seems that no matter how hard you tried, if their parents were in prison, they would end up there, said Kate Desmond, a supervisor with Oregon's Department of Community Justice who works with delinquent children. There are a couple of families in Portland where I can say about half of them are in prison. Patricia Baldwin, the county prosecutor in tiny Danville, Indiana, say, says that the same is true there. I think you can, you can definitely see it, she said. We joke sometimes that people ought to get a family cell block. Pretty, petty crimes and alcohol-related offenses seem the most common to run in families, which often show evidence of abusive relationships Baldwin said, it's just like dysfunctional families raise dysfunctional children. The Weavers case is far from the first allegation of crime running in in families that have made the headlines. When Roy Ramsey was executed in Missouri three years ago, his family was familiar to law enforcement officials around the state. Nine of his ten brothers had served time, four of them for murder. One was killed after being released from prison. Roy Ramsey, who was convicted of murdering a retired couple in 1998, blamed the crime on his brother, Billy. In Ohio, in the mid-1990s, Jason Earl Wagner and his younger brother, Troy, were each convicted of attempted gross sexual imposition. The men's father, Jeffrey Wagner, had been convicted of rape more than two decades earlier. 
Rafael Edmund III and his mother, Constance Bootsy Perry, were convicted in 1990 of running a major drug network in the District of Columbia. Edmund's father, sisters, brother-in-law, cousin, and aunt were all eventually convicted of participating in the scheme. Bad environments teach bad behavior, Thomas Bloomberg, a criminologist professor at Florida State University, says. It is not hard to understand why crime runs in the families. Crime is learned, he said. Not only do you learn how to carry out those behaviors, but you also rationalize and justify them. Children learn to see violence and criminal behavior as a solution to life's problems. You say, why are you reading this article? Because I want you to understand, in the Bible, when God says multiple times over and over and over and over again that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children in the third and fourth generation, it's not because God is placing a curse on them where they cannot break out of that, but it is because more often than not, children will likely pick up the iniquities of their fathers. They will pick up the sins and the behaviors. And I mean, you can read statistic after statistic of how children will often mirror the behavior of their parents. So you need to realize that you have been influenced, and I have been influenced, and you will influence, and I will influence future generations. I'd like you to write down a second statement. Here's point number two. Recognize that your children will likely deal with similar circumstances and respond resembling you. Recognize that your children will likely deal with similar circumstances as you and will respond resembling you. See, in the Bible, you find these generational curses. But I want you to understand, you also find generational blessings. It's not just a negative There's also a positive. Let's look at a few of them. Go to the book of Ruth. You're there in Deuteronomy. Just go past the book of Ruth, uh, past Joshua, Judges, into the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter number four. Ruth chapter number four. I'd like you to look at verse number 17. Ruth chapter four and verse 17. If you've ever read the book of Ruth, you find that it's a very nice love story between uh, Ruth and her future husband. But you may find yourself wondering, why is this even in the Bible? Why did God choose to put this in Scripture? The answer to that question is found at the very end of the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4 and verse 17 says this, The woman and the woman, her neighbor, gave it a name saying, There is a son born to Naomi. This is Ruth's uh, uh, mother-in-law after Ruth gave birth. Notice what it says. And they called his name Obed. All right. Now Obed is the son of Ruth. Notice what the Bible says. He is the father of Jesse, so Jesse is the grandson of Ruth, the father of David. David, King David, the famous David from the Bible, the David that killed Goliath, the David that the, the, David that the Lord Jesus Christ will sit on the throne of David for a thousand years. David is the great-grandson of, of, of Ruth. You say, why is the book of Ruth in Scripture? Why is the story in the Bible? Why does God tell us this love story about uh, Ruth and, and Boaz and, and all of these things? And I want you to understand, I think God added it in there because God wanted you to know and I to know that to rate David, look, David's don't just happen. Men of God that raise up and, and, and do great things for God and great feats for God and, and slay Goliath and, and do wonderful things for the Lord, that doesn't just happen. I believe that one of the reasons that David was used mightily of God was because there was a generational blessing there. Going all the way back to great-grandmother Ruth, who would establish the blessing. So notice, the curses go second, third, fourth, fifth generation, but so do the blessings. 
Go to the book of Psalms. For, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Samuel. First Samuel chapter number 9. You're there in Ruth, just the next book over. First Samuel chapter 9. You say, well, that's, maybe that's just a coincidence that God would tell us about David, who his great-grandmother is, Ruth. Well, David was the second king of Israel. Let's look at the first king of Israel. Who was the first king of Israel? A man by the name of Saul. First Samuel chapter number 9. Look at verse 1. Notice what the Bible says. Now, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish. Now, Kish is the father of Saul. Notice what the Bible says. Whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel. So this would be the grandfather of Saul. The son of Zeror. This would be the great-grandfather of Saul. The son of Bechorath. This would be the great-great-grandfather of Saul. The son of Aphiah. That would be the great great Great-grandfather of Saul, notice, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, notice, a mighty man of power. Look at verse 2. And he, Kish, had a son whose name was Saul. And then we go into the story of Saul and how Saul becomes king. You say, well, why is verse 1 there? Why would God feel the need to tell us about Saul's father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather and his great-grandfather and go down that line just to tell us that he was a mighty man of power? I think the reason God did that, and I think the reason that Saul was chosen is because there was a great-great-great-grandfather somewhere in the line there that was a mighty man of power. And you said, what did he do? I don't know. But God saw fit to choose his descendant to be Saul, and he wanted to make sure to give a shout out to him and say, hey, when you go down in the lineage, you have a mighty man of power. God saw fit to put David as the second king of Israel, and then he said, let's just put a little book, a four-chapter book in the Bible called the book of Ruth so that we can honor David's great-grandmother and show the lineage. I'm just here to tell you, there are examples in Scripture of generational curses, but there are also examples of generational blessings. Go to 2 Kings, chapter number 10. 2 Kings, you're there in 1 Samuel. You're going to go past the book of 2 Samuel, past the book of 1 Kings, into the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings, chapter number 10. Look at verse 30. 2 Kings, chapter number 10, verse 30. 2 Kings, chapter 10, and verse 30. The Bible says, And the Lord said unto Jehu, This was a king of Israel, who did good when he started out, but he ended up ending his life in a bad way. But God blesses the good of his life. Notice 2 Kings chapter 10 and verse 30. And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which was right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart. Notice what the Bible says. Thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. God promised Jehu because he did well, because he did what God called him to do, because he avenged the, uh, uh, the family of Ahab. God said, your children are going to sit on the throne unto the fourth generation. Go to 2 Kings chapter number 15. 2 Kings chapter number 15. Look at verse number 11. In 2 Kings 15 11, God makes sure to tell us at the death of Jehu's fourth generation grandson, that God kept his promise. Second Kings chapter number 15, look at verse 11. The Bible says, In the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Israel. This was the word of the Lord, which he, the Lord, spake unto Jehu, saying, Thy son shall sit on the throne unto the fourth generation. And so it came to pass. Notice how God makes a promise, and then when he fulfills it, he wants to make sure you know, hey, that's what, you say, why, did he, why, why, why were they kings? Because I promised it. And there was a blessing there. That was handed down from Jehu four generations down the line 
of his grandson. Go, go, go to the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible. Genesis chapter number 15. I know we're looking at a lot of Bible today, but I think that's why you're in church, where you want to learn the Bible, know the Bible, understand the Bible. Generation 15, uh, Genesis 15, look at verse number 13. Genesis chapter 15. Let me give you one more example. We saw bad generational curses, and we're looking at some examples of good generational curses. Genesis 15, and look down at verse number 13. First book in the Bible, Genesis 15 and verse 13. The Bible says, And he, that's God, said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed, talking about his descendants, shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward they, talking about his descendants, they shall come out with great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and, thou, and shalt be buried in a good old age. So he's telling Abraham, you're going to die, but after your death, look at verse 16, but in the fourth generation, they, your descendants, shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And I want you to understand, God blessed Abraham because of Abraham's faith, because of Abraham's willingness to forsake all, to trust God, to go with God, to do what God called him to do. God said, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to give you a nation. But he says, you're actually going to die, Abraham, and it's actually going to happen to your fourth generation. Say, so what is that? That's a generational blessing. I mean, could you, could you imagine that there are some steps and some actions and some decisions that you are making today that could have an effect not only on your children and on your grandchildren, but on your great-grandchildren and your great-great-grandchildren? It happened for Abraham. It happened for Jehu. It happened for Ruth. It happened for Saul. See, you need to understand that you need to realize that you have been influenced that you have been influenced by past generations and that you will influence future generations. See, someone said this, I must not live for self. I must always be aware of the impact of my life on my children, my grandchildren, and my great-grandchildren. The quote in the bulletin says, each generation will reap what the former generation has sown. I remember many years ago, I, you know, it's, it's our church's seventh anniversary, so I've been taking the time to, my wife and I, talking a little bit, reminiscing about when we, the church started and everything we've gone through. And we're talking about a certain individual. This was years ago. We had a lady coming to church who was raising her grandson. And her grandson was young, but he was close to the age of our kids, and they would play a little bit. I remember one time they were at our house. I don't know. We were having them over for lunch or something. I don't remember what it was now, but we were all together. And this little boy said to one of our boys, he said, let's play cops and robbers. I'll be the robber. Give me all your money. And I, and I thought to myself, you know, because usually when I watch kids play, you know, you know they, they're like, let's play cops and robbers, and they want to fight about who gets to be the cop. Because none of them want to be the robber. But this kid in his mind, he had made being the robber like the good guy. And this kid was being raised by his grandmother because his parents were not in the picture. Because his parents were on drugs and in prison and living a life that way. And I'm just here to tell you that people pick these things up from somewhere. Yesterday we were out soul winning. I was, my wife and I were soul winning Brother Matt and Miss Casey. I hope they don't uh, mind me telling the story. But they were telling us how Brother Matt leads, is one of our song leaders here. He did a wonderful job with the choir this morning. And they were telling us about how their son Josiah had gone up on a little stool and had made them sit down, and Josiah was leading the music and making them sing to it. What do you think he learned that? Well, he's watching Daddy up here leading the music. 
And then he wants to go and do that. And then you got other children that are watching that eat deal drugs, and they want to go and do that. And you need to understand that you have been influenced by prior generations, that you will influence prior generations, but you also need to recognize that your children, that your children will likely deal with similar circumstances and will likely respond in a similar fashion. This is, I think, the most clearly seen in the book of Genesis, in the story of Abraham and Isaac. You're there in Genesis already. Go to Genesis chapter number, 20, uh, chapter number 12, just real quickly. Let me show you this. Genesis chapter number 12, look at verse number 10. In Genesis chapter number 12, and look at verse number 10. In Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10, notice what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 12 and verse 10, the Bible says, And there was a famine in the land. I want you to just... Put your finger right there and just keep that in mind. We're talking about the life of Abraham. The Bible says there was a famine in the land. Go, go with me just real quickly to Genesis 26. Keep your finger there in Genesis 12. We're going to go back and forth a little bit. Let's fast forward a little bit to the life of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Genesis 26, verse 1. Why don't you notice what the Bible says? And there was a famine in the land. Genesis 26, verse 1. So are you still reading 12:10? No, I'm reading Genesis 26, 1. It says the exact same thing. Genesis 12.10 says, and there was a famine in the land during the life of Abraham. Genesis 26.1 says, and there was a famine in the land. Notice what it says, Genesis 26.1. And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. It's interesting that Abraham dealt with a famine during his life, but guess what? Isaac dealt with a famine during his life as well. And you know what? You deal with temptations, and you deal with trials, and you deal with tests, and there are things that you have to deal with in your life, but I'm here to tell you, your sons and your daughters and your grandsons and your granddaughters will deal with the same things. There's no new thing under the sun. See, you want to sit there and say, well, the reason that I can't do this, the reason that I can't do that, and here's my excuse, and here's why I can't do it. But listen to me, listen to me. Your children will have an opportunity to have the exact same excuse. Abraham says, well, I got vaccinated because God led a famine. But you know what? Isaac's going to have to deal with a famine too. You need to understand that your children, your children, you need to recognize that your children will likely deal with similar circumstances as you. Notice there in Genesis 12, look at verse 10 again. Keep your finger there in Genesis 12 and Genesis 26. Notice what it says. And there was a famine in the land. Notice what it says. And Abraham went down to Egypt. When there was a famine in the land, Egypt in the Bible is always a picture of the world. It's not a place that God wants us to be living in. It's a place of bondage. It's not a good place. But when there was a famine in the land, Genesis 12, 10, the Bible says, and Abraham went down to Egypt. When the famine came, the temptation for Abraham was to go down to Egypt. Let's fast forward to his son Isaac. Genesis 26, look at verse 2. Genesis 26, verse 2. We already read verse 1. There was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. Notice what the Bible says in verse 2. And the Lord appeared unto him. Unto who? Isaac. And said, go not down into Egypt. Now, why would God say that to Isaac? You know why God said that to Isaac? Because when there was a famine in the land for Abraham, the temptation was to go down to Egypt. And when there was a famine in the land for Isaac, the temptation was to go down to Egypt. See, your children will deal with the same tests, the same trials, the same environments, the same culture, the same circumstances. And they will likely respond in the same way that you and I responded. Go back to Genesis chapter... uh, Actually, look at verse 26 there. Look look at verse 26, verse 1. Notice what Isaac does. 
And there was a famine in the land beside the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went unto Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, unto Gerar. Skip down to verse number 6. And Isaac dwelt in Gerar. Go back to Genesis chapter 20. Let's go see what daddy did. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. And Abraham journeyed from thence. Genesis chapter 20, verse 1. And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in, look at it, Gerar. There's a famine in Abraham's life. There's a famine in Isaac's life. There's a temptation to go down to Egypt. There's a temptation to go down to Egypt. One goes down to Gerar. The other one goes down to Gerar. See, here's what you need to understand. History repeats itself. Go, look at Genesis 20. Look at verse 2. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, notice what Abraham does. She is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Abraham lied. I don't have time to get into the story, but here's what you need to know. Abraham lies about his wife being a sister. She's actually taken. God has to step in because she's almost going to be married off to the king of Gerar. Because he lied and said, she is my sister. Look down at verse number 13, Genesis chapter 12 and verse 13. Notice what, uh, what, what uh, the Bible says that Abraham told Sarah. Genesis chapter 12, verse 13. Say, I pray thee, thou art my sister. Let's see what son does. Genesis 26, look at verse 7. Genesis 26, verse 7. Genesis 26, verse 7. Notice what the Bible says. And the men of the place asked him, now we're talking about Isaac, of his wife, and he said... She is my sister. Isn't it interesting that history repeats itself? Isn't it interesting to you that boys that are abandoned by their fathers more than likely end up abandoning their own children? Isn't it? I mean, you would think, you would think that if you were raised in a family where your father abandoned you, that you would say, well, I'm not going to do that to my kids. But statistically, we're, we know Statistically, I'm not attacking these people. I'm just telling you. Statistically, we know when a child is raised without a father, he's more likely to have children that he does not have a part in their lives. When a, when a teenager gives birth to a child, that child is more likely to end up pregnant as a teenager. When, when, when parents smoke, the children are more likely to smoke. When parents drink alcohol, the children are more likely to become drunks. When parents are on drugs, children are more likely to be on drugs. When parents are obese, children are more likely to be obese. When parents go to prison, children are more likely to go to prison. It's just the truth of life. It's just the way life goes. When there's a famine and Abraham is likely to go down to Egypt, then when there's a famine in his son's life, he's likely to go down to Egypt. When Abraham goes down to Gerar, Isaac's likely to go down to Gerar. When Abraham lies about his wife being a sister, Isaac lies about his wife being a sister. Why? Because you need to recognize that your children will likely deal with similar circumstances as you and respond in the same way. So here's the question I have for you, Mom. How are you responding to life's trials and temptations? Because you're, you're likely just setting the stage for your children. When parents have anger problems, guess what, who they raise? Children with anger problems. When parents have character issues, guess I mean, I mean you, you can go down the line. Moms who leave their husbands are more likely to raise daughters who leave their husbands. It's statistically proven. You say, what, what is that? It's a generational curse. Or, or, a generational blessing. Go to Nehemiah chapter number 1. 
Nehemiah chapter number one. You're there in Genesis, you're going to go past Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles. Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezra, Nehemiah. You say, Pastor, man, this has been kind of a negative sermon. Well, let me give you the good news. The good news is this. You don't have to live under a generational curse. You know that curses can be broken? See, you don't have to, because remember, we, we're not, we, you say, I'm not teaching this so I can say, well, this is why my life's a mess, because I come from a family of mess. No, 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 no. God allows you to take responsibility for your actions. Say, my parents are in prison. You don't have to go to prison. My parents are drug addicts. You don't have to be a drug addict. My parents are drunks. You don't have to be drunk. Generational curses can be broken, and generational blessings can be established. But see, before you get there, you need to realize that you have been influenced by past, and you will influence future generations. You need to recognize that your children will likely be tempted and tested with the same trials and temptations that you are tested with and will respond in a similar fashion. Number three, resolve to establish or continue a godly family legacy. You must resolve to establish or continue a godly family legacy. You say, let me, let me give you just real quickly, I want to give you three steps on how to break a family curse and two steps on how to establish a family blessing. If you're writing these statements down, I'd like you to write this down. Number one, how to break a family curse. Number one, you must acknowledge it. You must acknowledge it. Look, I, we're, I'm not talking about blaming your parents or your grandparents. I'm not talking about going into my office, laying down on my couch and saying, well, my mom, my dad, that's why I'm unemployed. Because my parents weren't employed. No, we're, we're, not, we're not talking about blaming anybody, but you do need to acknowledge it. Some of you need to go back and realize the reason, the reason that I am living this way is because I was raised in an environment that taught me to think that way. I'm not talking about blame, but you must acknowledge. I want you to notice what Nehemiah does in Nehemiah chapter number 1. Nehemiah chapter number 1 and verse 2, the Bible says that Hanani... One of my brethren, this is Nehemiah speaking, came he and certain men of Judah and asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity of concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, the remnant that are left of the captivity there in the providence are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass, notice what Nehemiah says, because Nehemiah is hearing about his brothers. Notice what it says, verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brethren... He's asking about his brothers and about the state of his family. And they told him, they're in great affliction and reproach. And notice what Nehemiah does in verse 4. It says, and it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, Nehemiah didn't sit there and just say, well, let me just not think about that. Let me just put my my, my head in the sand and not worry about that. No, look, some of you need to just come to grips with and acknowledge the fact that you may be living under a generational curse. That maybe your parents got divorced and your grandparents got divorced and that's why you're leading towards a divorce. That maybe your parents were alcoholics and your great-grandparents were alcoholics and that's why you have a drinking problem. That your parents smoked and their parents smoked and that's why you smoke. That you're, you're living in a life, and we're not talking about blaming, but just acknowledging the fact that this is the descendancy this is the legacy that has been brought down to me. Say, Pastor Jimenez, how do you break a family curse? Well, number one, you acknowledge it. Number two, you admit it. What do you mean by that? It means you confess it. 
It means that you confess your sins and the sins of your parents. Say, what? Look at verse 5. And said, I beseech thee, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keepeth covenant and mercy, for them that love him and observe his commandments, let thine ears now be attentive and thine eyes open. Notice what Nehemiah says, that thou mayest hear the prayers of thy servant, which I pray before thee now, day and night, for the children of Israel thy servant, and confess, notice what he says, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against thee, both I and my father's house have sinned. You know what Nehemiah did? He said, I'm not going to sit here and make excuses. I'm not going to sit here and say, well, I'm the way this way because my parents, because my mom, because my dad, because my grandparents, because my uncles, because my brothers. He said, I'm going to acknowledge it and I'm going to admit it to God. I'm going to confess my sin and if they're not willing to confess, I'll just go ahead and confess theirs too. He confessed the sins. He said, he, he confessed his sins. He said that both I and my father's house have done. So how do you break a... Generational curse. Will you acknowledge it? You admit it. Number three, you alter it. Luke verse 7. You say, well, that's not very deep. You know, it's funny how the Bible's not very deep. It's just hard to do. Luke verse 7. We have dealt very corruptly against thee, and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor judgments, which thou commandest thy servant Moses. He said, we have not been doing what you told us to do. We have not been keeping what you told us to keep. Remember, I beseech thee, the word that thou commandest, thy servant Moses, is saying, if ye transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. He said, you, God, you did what you said you were going to do. You said if we transgress, you were going to scatter us, and here we sit scattered. Notice what he says in verse 9. But if ye turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were of you cast out, unto the uttermost part of heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. See, he says, if you turn unto me. Say, how do you break a general curse? Somebody has to have the courage and the wisdom to acknowledge it, admit it, and decide, I'm going to change it. We're going to turn this thing around. We're going to do something different. We're going to alter the way this family's been going. We're going to turn the way this family has been going. Go to the book of Psalms. You're there in Nehemiah. You got the book of Esther, Job, Psalms. We're going to look at two verses in Psalms, one in Proverbs, and we'll be done. All right? Two in Psalms, one in Proverbs, we'll be done. You say, how do you break a family curse? You acknowledge it, you admit it, and you alter it. You acknowledge it, you admit it, and you change it. You acknowledge it, you admit it, and you repent. You turn. You say, we were doing this, now we're going to do this. You say, how about those of you that have been given a great blessing? How do you establish a family blessing? Because, you know, the only thing worse than starting a family curse or continuing a family curse, the only thing worse than that is when you've been handed a blessing and then you turn it into a curse. When, when, they, when they give you all the resources, they give you all the love, they give you all the prayer that you need, and you fumble the ball with the family. How do you establish family blessings? Notice, notice what the Bible says in Psalm 16 and verse 6. Remember David, our hero? I think his great-grandmother had something to do with that. Notice what David said in the book of Psalms, Psalm 16 and verse 6. Psalm 16 and verse 6. Notice what David said. He said, The lines are fallen upon me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. Listen, Mom, that's your, your goal in life should be that your children can say that. Listen, Dad, your goal in life should be that your children don't say, Well, you know, Dad kind of had a drinking problem. 
in and out of prison. Left mom when I was nine. We had that, you know, we'd had that whole little going to church thing for a while, but then he kind of gave up on it. No, no, the goal, look, the goal for my children is that my adult children would say, the lines are falling unto me in pleasant places. Yea, I have a goodly heritage. You know, I'm thankful that I can stand up here today and I can't tell you my family was perfect and my parents weren't perfect and I'm sure there was all sorts of things wrong with our family, but I can tell you this morning that I am thankful that the lines were falling unto me in pleasant places. I'm thankful that I was raised in church. I'm thankful that I had a mom and I had a dad. I never had to, I never, never one time in my life did I ever wake up on a Sunday morning and wonder, I wonder if we're going to go to church today. It was just what we did. Never in my life. I, we, we were out of town. If we were out of town, I never woke up on a Sunday and thought, I wonder if we're going to go to church today. We're on vacation. Never even crossed my mind. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, soul wedding. It was just church. We had Bible time at home. I'm not saying our family was perfect, but I'm here to tell you, I believe that I'm standing here today because I had a mother and I had a father who loved the Lord and said, we're going to raise these children right. And you know what? I had a grandfather that loved the Lord too. I had a grandmother that loved the Lord too. My father is a first-generation Christian. He was reached by missionaries in Venezuela, but my mother was raised by my godly grandparents. My grandfather was a preacher in Venezuela. For years and years, I pastored Verity Baptist Church, and I'd take my coat off to preach. I'd take my coat off to preach. I'd take my coat off to preach. One day, one of our families members told me, you know your grandpa used to take off his coat to preach? <laughs> I didn't know that. My grandmother was visiting from Venezuela. Some of you may remember. She was here, I don't know, maybe eight months ago or something. And they, they would come to church, her and my aunt, while they were here for like six weeks. And at the time I was going through a series, they didn't speak English, of course, they spoke Spanish, and, but they just come and they just wanted to see the whole family serving the Lord here, and they didn't understand. And I was preaching a series of sermons called Earnestly Contend for the Faith. And I was going through and explaining how we need to contend for the faith and how there are some doctrines that, are, that are, are, are attacking our faith. And I was talking about how you don't have to repent of your sins to be saved, how you don't lose your salvation, how you don't have to earn salvation. I was preaching these things. Well, one of the days after lunch, we, after church, we were having lunch with my grandmother, and my grandmother was asking about the sermon. And I was trying to explain to her what I was preaching, and my Spanish may not be as good as it needs to be. And I was trying to explain to her, you know, that there are some people who believe you have to work your way to heaven and you have to earn salvation and I was about to say to her that I was preaching against that but before I could even say it she cut me off because she understood that I was teaching that you need to work your way to heaven and she she looked at me and my grandmother began to rebuke me and said well that's not what the bible teaches the bible does not say the bible says it's not of works and I said no no no, I I know that I, I know that's what I was preaching but you know it was a huge blessing for me to have my elderly grandmother rebuke me because she thought I was preaching heresy over lunch, the lines are falling into me in pleasant places. Yeah, I have a goodly heritage. That ought to be the goal for your children. That ought to be the goal for your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. Psalm 78 and verse 4, the Bible says this. Psalm 78 in verse 4, you say, how do you, how do you establish that family blessing? How do you establish that blessing for God? Here's, there's two things. You need to retrain and redirect. Number one, you retrain. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when, he old, he, when he's old, he should not depart from it. Psalm 78 and verse 4 says this, We will not hide from their children, 
We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. We need to reach our generation. We need to reach our children. We need to retrain our children, but you know what? We also need to redirect them. And that's what this series is all about. You say, why are you doing a, a series on a, a, a faithful family? Why do, you, why do we want a family full of faith? Look, we're going to spend the next several weeks talking to you about how to have a family that is growing in the Lord and spiritual. We're going to be talking about how to raise spiritual children, children that are engaged in the things of God. Next Sunday, this next Sunday, we're going to talk about how to raise children who are actually spiritual and love the Lord, and are engaged in the Word of God. I love watching the teenagers in our church go out and preach the gospel. More interested than most pastors in America today about reaching the lost, our kids running around here. We're going to talk about how to properly discipline your out-of-control children. If you've got a child who's out of control, listen to me. I know you like to make all sorts of excuses. My kids are different than other kids. My kids have more energy. Look, God has given us the ability to discipline and control them. We're going to talk about how to do that you got to be here. Week three. We're going to talk about how to have a Christ-honoring marriage. We're going to talk about how to be a godly wife and how to be a Christ-like husband. We're going to talk to the singles about how to properly date and seek for a partner. We're going to teach you and give you tools over the next several weeks about how to be trained spiritually so you can redirect this thing. So you can break family curses and establish family blessings. This year during the Red Hot Preaching Conference, I asked Brother Jared to give a testimony. He gave a very powerful testimony. I listened to it again this morning. He said this in his testimony. I asked permission to repeat it. I thought this was a powerful statement. He said, your decisions will shape future generations. And look, there's nothing more true than that. You are here this morning, and you need to understand that not only have you been shaped, by the decisions of past generations. But your decisions, the decisions you make today, whether you're going to serve the God of the Bible or serve other gods, whether you're going to serve the Lord or serve Baal, whether you're going to move forward into the promised land or get backslidden into the wilderness, whether you're going to do what God has called you to do, your decisions will shape future generations. Then he said this, Grab the wheel with both hands and turn the ship because you're the only one that can do it. And I'm here to tell you that you need to decide today. I'm talking to the men in this room. I'm talking to the husbands and to the fathers. I'm talking to a man right now who's not spiritually engaged with his family. You're the man, but you're not leading. You need to take that wheel by both hands and redirect that ship. And say, we're moving. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I'm talking to a wife this morning who has a husband who's not spiritually engaged. He doesn't come to church with you. He doesn't care about the things of God. I think you ought to love your husband. I think you ought to respect your husband. But I also think you need to just grab hold of that wheel and say, I'm going to raise these kids for God. I'm talking to a single mom who's here and raising her children without a father. And because of circumstances in your life, that's just the way it turned out. I'm here to tell you that you don't have to live under generational curses, and you don't have to pass down generational curses, but you need to decide right now you're going to take that wheel and turn that ship. I'm talking to some grandparents who maybe think, well, I've already messed up with my children, but you've got some grandchildren that you can influence for God. 
Or maybe you did a good job with your grandchildren. Don't go on va- with your children. Don't go on vacation now. Make sure those grandkids and those great grandkids get raised for the Lord. I'm talking to a generation of Christianity that if we don't decide right now, if we don't decide right now that we need to make sure we hand down a blessing to the next generation, we are looking at the next Japan, right. India, communist China. Because more and more the United States of America is becoming a pagan nation. And it's because, it's because either we will pass down a curse or we will pass down a blessing. We will give our children the advantage of having the blessings of God. You may be the Ruth that influences the next David. Or you may be passing down a curse that will curse your family for the next ten generations. Choice is yours. You don't have to live under that curse. You can break that curse and you can establish generational blessings. May we pray together? Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for these truths in Scripture. I know they're not necessarily things we want to think about. But Lord, I pray that you would help somebody in this room today. Lord, I pray that you would help each and every one of us today to say, you know what? I'm going to grab hold of that steering wheel and I'm going to turn this thing around. I know how my mom did things, and I love mom, but she made some mistakes. I'm not blaming mom, but I'm not going to make the same mistakes mom made. I'm not going to make the same mistakes dad made. I know how my siblings have gone, but I'm not, I'm not going to do what my siblings did. I know what my grandparents did, but I, I'm, just, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm going to break that curse. I'm going to hand out a blessing. And maybe there are people here today like I am who's not a first-generation Christian, who's a second-generation Christian or a third-generation Christian, and we've been handed out a blessing. Lord, help us to protect that thing. Help us to make sure we hand that down to our children and to train our children to hand it down to their children. Lord, I pray that today and decisions that are made right now in this room, right now, would have an impact, not just on the lives of those that are here today, but on their second generation, on a third generation, on a fourth generation, on a tenth generation to come, that generations from here on would be influenced by the decisions made by the people in this room. Lord, we love you. In the name of Christ, we pray.